It was intended for the human to support the machine, the machine to support the human and work. And AI means something different to anybody you talk to, which is wild. This is AI or die. Hello, everybody. Welcome to AI or Die, episode eight. I got the episode number right this time. Very exciting. Lots to discuss. We have a special guest joining in a little bit, uh, Salima Rice. She's going to talk a lot about what she's seeing in her organization, focus on the CDOs. And, and thank you, Reagan, so much for inviting her. I'm really excited to have her on. I love her. She is amazing. I'm excited for her to jump on as well. Yeah, that's going to be good. But before she joins, obviously, we need to get into what is going on in our life, where we're at, what we're doing, personal stuff. So I can start. Um, it's kind of interesting. I'm finding myself doing more and more workshops around like data project management, which is interesting. So I'm seeing a lot of teams start to think about data solutions as products, which is awesome. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. Just putting that product manager hat on, thinking about managing data and AI projects specifically, and just having consistent requirements gathering up front. Like that's the biggest pain that I'm hearing from folks. So that's going on along with, um, Brennan and I are kind of actually working on a pretty interesting project with a nonprofit focused on distributing trees to folks in the area. So they get tree donations from the city and they basically handle distribution to the public, anybody who wants to adopt a tree. So they're leveraging data to basically help with throughput of that distribution, get more trees to more people and survivability of the trees as well. So kind of fun stuff that we get to work on. It's so fun how all this data and AI work touches all these different industries and stuff like that too. So that's what I got going on. Reagan, what's going on in your life? How's your week been lately? Trying to wake up. I'm going to try my best to be high energy on this episode. Um, I just flew in. It was very late last night. We got home around like 2 a.m. from Denver. So I was there for a conference. Oh, it was excellent. Um, we can talk a little bit about that. Um, but yeah, it was hosted in Vail, which is not a bad place to be. Oh, <laughs> and then, of course, Brendan leaves and I'm in the neighborhood. So yeah, it was awesome. It was beautiful. A lot of incredible individuals in the AI ecosystem just having really, really fun conversations about what's changing and becoming more efficient and, and you know, the different paradigm shifts that are starting to happen. And what's so fun is like nobody agrees on anything. And I find that to be so fascinating. Like there's some things that people are agreeing on, but there's a lot that people are disagreeing on. Mainly it's about like where where things are going and where things are headed. Um, yeah. I think large trends, it's easy to agree on on where we're going just because we've been in this for a little bit now. But some of the smaller, more nuanced things um, that we still don't have a lot of information about, people are all over the place on that. And, you know, like little things like vector databases and um, which which um, organizations are, are really developing in, in the right direction there and, and what they're supporting and how they can support things like RAG um, and, and different use cases that, that are being leveraged for that. So it's just, been, it's just been like a fun, mentally stimulating couple of days. And now I'm trying to make sure my brain is still turned back on, so. Yeah, events like that, there's always like getting energy from just talking to people and just learning what other work teams are working on. But yeah, inherently draining, dude. You're on for for days, days, just going back to back meetings and talking to folks too. But good, welcome back. Happy to have you back, obviously. And Brennan, what's going on in your life? How you been lately, man? It's good. I'm out here in Barcelona, so I've just been going to the beach in the morning and working in the afternoon. So it's been a nice... Uh... Fun little time. Um, we are staying up on the seventh floor of this apartment building right now and had to bring our 
suitcases up without an elevator yesterday. So that was a harrowing and daunting activity, um, more physically demanding than I typically have experienced. So um, what I would say, work's been going great too, just working more on the product, getting more feedback from folks. So it's always very energizing and exciting when you are developing something and then you put it out in the world and people are interested and they're, you know, uh, pursuing working with us on it. So very exciting stuff in general right now. Yeah, very exciting stuff. So for episode eight, obviously, we want to talk more about the news as well and what's going on. Kind of funny on episode seven, if you guys listened, we kind of called the chat GPT for kids. Is that going to come out? And I pulled this up yesterday, just prepping for this episode. There is a solution out there called Pinwheel GPT. It's actually a classmate of ours is working on the analytics team there. But basically, Pinwheel is a company that basically provides phones for kids and teens. It's a safeguarded phone, basically locking down and having parental guidance around like what the kids can see and use. And then with all of this, obviously GPT hype, they put out a GPT for kids or teens in that way that has a lot of lockdowns related to what kind of returns that they can get, like what kind of prompts that they can use and things like that too. So we're seeing it already, guys. Like it's starting to spread out into education, younger folks and stuff like that too. I just want to say we called that one. I love it. Actually- Lieutenant Governor John Houston called that one. <laughs> he asked the question. It prompted the conversation, yeah. but but agreed. Um, I I think like you're, we're gonna keep seeing these UX directional kind of interfaces, UX focused directional interfaces for um, what's happening. And uh, honestly, I wanted to call this out as well. Like I think for anybody who's kind of non technical who's a user of this. Um, whether it's ChatGPT or MidJourney or whatever. Um, I think what's interesting that's also happening is in the developer world, the layers of abstraction are getting more and more useful. So like even building more useful products with foundational models is getting better and better. Like the open source community is just doing such a great job on making sure that they're kind of addressing some of the, the user experience from uh, issues from the developer perspective um, very quickly. And so that, that to me is also exciting. I do love these kind of like point solutions and, and people who are um, focused on the user experience element, like what do we want to filter out? How do we control for that? Um, I heard a quote at the conference this week that I loved, which was, it is a feature of ChatGPT to hallucinate. And the feature, and the reason they said that is because it's doing exactly what it was designed to do. You know, it's not what we want necessarily, but like it's doing exactly what it was supposed to do. You wanted to write a poem, you know, it's not based on factual things. It's it's creating new content, it's generating new content, and it's predicting the next best word. And so the hallucination is in fact a feature. Um, and if we want it to not be a feature, then we have to think about the way that we're creating the, the user experience and interfacing with these models. And so I just thought that was so interesting. It's like, you know, we're seeing it as a bug, but it's not. It's a feature right now. Classic joke, right? That's a feature, not a bug. Like, what do you think about that, Brandon? I feel like that gets into the philosophy of like, what is a bug and what is a feature? Right. Um, right. But yeah, I think there's like a deeper problem, right, of like, how do you validate what is true, right? And like, I've been getting more and more into like the performance measurement of LLMs and it's so interesting how subjective it is to try to measure that output. So it gets into this whole, like, if it's misaligned to our intention, is it a feature or a bug? And that's part of it. And then the other part of it is like, how can we even 
like what are we aligning to um to even say what's true or not you know well these things morph over time i mean think about twitter slash x right like it was a social media platform and then people started using it for news that's when truth became important and so i think like there's always this like paradigm shift of usage that starts to happen especially when you make a very generalized product like ChatGPT, like using it for creative purposes it's great and then people were like well i'm gonna start using this for more practical things and i want it to be factual and i want it to be true and so now you've got to account for that and you have to design for that and that was not not that it wasn't the original intention i think it was but like there's just a we're blending too many things into one chat interface you know what i mean so that's why i think it's interesting that these kind of specific solutions are starting to get worked on which there's a lot of hum on just thought leaders saying that this is going to be the year of really applications instead of the training and r&d side the industrialization of ai which i think we've already seen emerging but it just it's like applications daily hourly are coming out just as like different versions of a lot of this functionality too very exciting very exciting times yeah and i i want to call out another fun uh like terminology thing that we were kind of going through in conversation this week um like specifically referencing it as generative ai or gen ai i think is interesting because we're now starting to see this massive umbrella of AI and like people are really referring to generative AI. They're not referring to all these other things. And so it was funny, Maya, um, who's from Savvy AI was there this week and she said, uh, we keep calling it old school AI or traditional. And she's like, it, make it makes it seem like it's, you know, not as useful anymore. And so we started, uh, she, she called it vintage ml or vintage ai and i thought that was so funny so like just continuing to refine how we talk about this too because we are saying the word ai a lot and what people most people are saying right now is generative ai yeah i was gonna say i was actually gonna point that out as a trend i'm noticing especially in like product conversations now and some of the groups i'm in i'm like oh they're really talking about gen ai they're not talking about like the ai that we've been doing more often in the enterprise or like at the industrial level i'd say um, so it is really interesting. I feel like we do need to be disciplined about calling out like when it is Gen AI because it is such a different, it is so different in many ways, right? Especially because a lot of it's NLP and natural language and text-based stuff. And that's very new into the realm of AI for many organizations, at least. Yeah, for sure. And just looking at the news too, you see even companies like Disney creating their own kind of task force to explore AI and obviously cut costs. That's the biggest like enterprise use case direction that they're going with it as well. I see this more of a PR push in my mind around like putting it out there. Hey, we're focusing on AI, especially with this writer strike and a lot of these applications that Disney really going to be focused on movie releases, reducing costs of new movies coming out and just optimizing that too. But it's interesting, large companies like this coming out and saying we're doing a task force around it when I inherently just perceive that they already had people working on AI at Disney at such a large organization. 100%. Absolutely, they did. And I think the other thing to note, too, when we're talking about cost cutting with AI, people are very, very, very hung up on these use cases, as they should be, because they're trying to find like the most useful application and start to see kind of this big return for you know where we're headed. Right, people are are have this perceived amount of of efficiency associated with these generative AI tools, and I, I think what's interesting is to kind of break it down into some of the use cases that we're observing today. Everybody keeps using customer service as the core example, and I think if we break that down, what does that look like? Well, one, it's heavily text based or audio based, um, 
and and you know people are trying to to interact it's conversational so you have a lot of conversational data and text data to support that um today and you know and it's kind of it's somewhat low risk right in terms of like if there's wrong answers provided the other thing to know is there's an efficiency play there so if you compare the use case of customer service to like developers um for developers we can keep the same number of people and pump out more code for customer service unless we acquire many many more customers yep. or you know there's a huge influx in volume you know there's no upper bound where it's like well the efficiency is going to continue going to help us or support us to grow so there yep. is a cost cutting element to that right because there's kind of like a cap of activity that happens yeah. um at, to an extent and so i think the other dimension of like efficiency around some of these ai use cases can be thought about from that perspective uh, and i just thought that that was an interesting observation in terms of like what are the impacts and how do we think about efficiency from a cost savings perspective or productivity perspective mm -hmm. yeah and i guess my hope is that with the benefit of ai we can get to a point i know cost cutting is easier to quantify it's easier to like really justify initially but I do hope, and customer service is a great example, I think, of let's focus on like the quality of the processes. Because I know in operational excellence, you do often start, start with like cost cutting opportunities. But once you've got that established, you do move into like, how can we service our customers better? Um, we're currently right now waiting for a bag that's somewhere coming over from the United States that we got lost on our uh, flight over here. And just seeing how bad that customer service experience has been. Um, I just hope that we all keep that in mind because I know a lot of the automation that came up with initial AI and like some of the Watson stuff. And now we have all these automated phone trees. It's like, is it actually better than a live human representative? Like we need to keep that in mind too, as we explore some of these additional AI opportunities to make sure we're not uh, shooting ourselves in the foot for the long run of like the experience of the people interacting with these automated systems. Oh, for sure. I can totally relate. I left my driver's license in Barcelona and I'm still waiting for it to get mailed back and calling the actual company that I lost it with. There is no direct line. I have to go through the customer service who then connects me to that actual branch where I lost it at too. So yeah, I hope, and we talked about this on the last episode, but I hope more effort as this whole industrialization of these use cases comes to be, I hope more UX focus comes to be just to help the end customers ultimately want to engage with something like this. Because again, if usage stagnates, the ROI goes out the window in that way. So related to that too, um, also in the news, NVIDIA reveals a new AI chip, says costs of running LLMs will drop significantly. So basically at the end of the year coming out, it's designed to, per the CEO, scale out the world's data centers um, and really help. And he calls out specifically helping on both the training and the inference side of things too. I'm not sure if you guys saw that. Any thoughts around this new chip because the CEO refers to it as like it will inference like crazy in that way. So I thought it was very funny. Yeah, I think um, this is such an interesting conversation as well on like which companies are going to invest in kind of these really heavy training um, efforts, like really expensive and really heavy training efforts, because I see that more as some of this like foundational research that's happening um, to enable other organizations to 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 leverage these foundational models um, aside from having to build them themselves. And so when he's talking about training versus inferencing, I thought that was really interesting because, you know, you can start to like 
most companies, enterprise organizations or legacy enterprise organizations are probably not going to invest in trying to like build their own LLM or foundational model. Maybe some of them will try and like toy around with it, but really they're going to be leveraging what's out there and trying to either fine tune it or leverage some of these rag techniques to get them to be very performant at specific tasks that they want to accomplish. And so um, I do think the whole compute conversation is really interesting because, you know, I think everybody initially thought of it as everybody's going to be training these like massive foundational yeah. models. And I think what we're seeing more and more is that folks are not really starting there and, you know, they'll start to get really, really deep um, if they need to, but if they don't need to, why, why spend all of that money um, to do that, even if the compute is getting cheaper, like what's the point, what's the ROI, what's the benefit of that? So um, I just think that's really interesting. There's like a couple of variables happening here. It's not just kind of the hardware itself, but there's also the techniques that people are leveraging and these models, these foundational models that are getting, you know, um, that are available for, for organizations to use. Yeah, and you mentioned rag technique a couple times now. Would you mind expanding on that for folks who are less familiar? Yeah, so there's a couple of different uh, techniques here, but you're really just like optimizing the the prompt to give you kind of more um, specific um, output or more performant output. So, um, you know, basically there are these like vector databases that you can put your kind of embedded uh, data into, and then you can leverage RAG to optimize the prompt into the model itself to get an optimized output. Um, and so that, you know, people are kind of talking about that architecture of that approach versus some of the kind of supervised fine tuning approaches, which is basically like taking, um, you know, it's basically kind of like labeled data where you have you know, examples of prompts and examples of really good outputs that you feed the model to basically give it um, some more specific examples to go deeper into a certain task or to mm. be able to perform a particular task. And so this is basically leveraging an existing foundational model that you have that you can use your own data for. Um, so that's kind of like the, the idea behind it. And, and I think folks are kind of toying around with both and there's a couple of different techniques and approaches for that. Obviously with the goal to optimize costs if they can, or at least just increase reusability as much as possible there. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. Um, on the NVIDIA side and the hardware side. Also, big news this week, Zoom in terms of their terms of service. So there's a lot of worries from users of Zoom now because essentially they released a new terms of service that said they could use customer data essentially do help with training other models on the back end. Um, even they released a blog post shortly after because of the amount of backlash that they had. So they promised not to use audio, video, or chat content for training our models without customer consent, but still you have to consent in and even if you're a participant who hasn't consented in, who joins a meeting hosted by somebody who has consented in, you as a participant still relinquish your data to Zoom in that way as well. So very interesting how putting this out there is kind of leading to backlash on Zoom side of things. And I wonder if other companies are almost pumping the brakes around what they're releasing terms on that might scare people away. So these big platforms are really trying to double down on how they can differentiate themselves in this ecosystem. 
and one of them is taking data from all of their customer bases and training models specifically for what they do. So think of like, you know, a Salesforce helping you write better emails or you know, whatever it is, like they're trying to create functionality. And today the differentiator is data, not necessarily the technique uh, in most cases. So if they have specific unique data that they can use to build really good functionality, they want to do that. And so a lot of these companies are towing the line on how much of this very specific data can we take from all of our customers to um, train these models uh, to, to provide differentiating functionality. And I think this is a really, really delicate balance because you know, if you're talking about kind of like the core capabilities or elements of a company that makes them like their IP, of course, they're not going to let you do that. Um, they're not going to want their competitor to benefit from data of theirs. And they're not going to want their data being, you know, exiting the organization. People were specifically calling out healthcare organizations and doctors talking on Zoom calls as an example, um, where there would be sensitive information being, you know, talked about on these calls. And so um, I think that scared a lot of CISOs. Uh, I saw a lot of security people on my LinkedIn feed um, talking about it. But, um, you know, the, the chief product officer issued a uh, statement about it, claiming that, you know, none of the audio and video was being actually leveraged for training. Um, but I do think that this was a good thing to kind of push out because now people are top of mind. Well, what are all of my other vendors doing with my data? And, you know, what, how should we be thinking about this and what needs to be in our, our, our agreements? Like, are we going to renew some of our contracts and put some more specific language in there around what can be leveraged for stuff like this? So I think it's a good conversation to be having. Um, sucks, I guess, for Zoom that, that they were the, the initiator of that conversation, but um, yeah, it was a very interesting couple of days of people talking about it. An important thing for enterprises to consider, though, as they could potentially shift from Zoom to Teams or Google Me, there's a few different options out there for them, too. So I'm very curious how this will become part of the conversation as they're looking at not only pricing and switching, but also well, how is the data used underneath? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And one more. Oh, go ahead, Brennan, if you have any thoughts. Yeah, on that. I was just going to say, I think it's. Uh, the classic conversation around data is like who owns it like how do we opt in how do we opt out how do we really manage this effectively and i think it's another you know milestone on many <laughs> a long path around how we're going to control like how people access our data and what information they can use like what's sensitive what's not sensitive so i think it's really interesting it's also interesting that zoom has been in the news twice <laughs> kind of in the hot seat because they also had people going back to the offices so they're in the news cycle on that one too so big rough week for zoom it sounds like but yeah i guess it's times you know yeah not a lot of good pr about that and then just one more story to talk through with you guys so the pentagon recently launched an ai competition it's kind of funny the government does this a lot where they'll throw money at it so 18 and a half million dollars to really solicit any winners in different categories to really center around the defcon conference in, in las vegas just around a help us think about different ai applications for helping with cybersecurity. and i think the long game of this that they're considering is hospitals, schools, it's kind of in their own like area to figure out how to address a lot of these security concerns. It's not centralized among especially those public entities here. So long game could potentially be whatever's found out here within this competition could potentially be something that's rolled out and made available to those public service entities too. But 
your thoughts, guys, especially with like Chinese and Russian intelligence hackers really doing a lot of stuff lately. Yeah, I I think security is the number one topic that enterprises are talking about when it comes to leveraging generative specifically. Um, generative AI, we were talking, I know, obviously about this umbrella of all AI things. I mean, we, we need to be thinking about security when it comes to all of AI. People are concerned about generative, I think for a couple of reasons. The first is they're not very explainable techniques. So we don't really know what it's using and why. And I think people are getting um, better at like researching this and trying to understand this, like why models are doing what they're doing. And if and, and so there's a level of hesitancy from a governance perspective on the transparency of the model. So like when you give a data, what does it do with it? And the other part is the security element of this, which is um, like from data a data privacy perspective. So data security from a data privacy perspective. So what can we do with that information? Where is it going? I think people are starting to figure that out. Like let's bring the foundational model, you know, in our own infrastructure. Let's start to leverage our own data, keep our own data, not send it outside of our company walls and into this kind of ambiguous black box of a model that a vendor is is using. And so I think the security conversation is getting more defined, which is really good. So I think there's starting to become some parameters around how to talk about it and how to think about it. I do think there's still some pretty unsolved problems in the security ecosystem around this, um, but security has also always gone hand in hand with AI, uh, mainly because it takes data and we're making decisions about it um, or leveraging decisions from the model that have risk implications. And so that those are kind of the parameters that we're seeing people talk about. And so when we look at it from a regulated industry perspective, you know, I've heard a vast range of initial guidance that companies are putting in place. So first, obviously on the one extreme is like, shut it all down, don't provide access. And I've heard of a lot of companies still doing that. Then on the other side is like, treat it like Google, don't put, you know, PHI in Google don't put it in ChatGPT, like that kind of level. And I think there's two different elements of security, one on the developer side and one on the general user side. And so there's many conversations happening there, which I think is interesting. Yeah, and the piece I like about this new story is like exploring the opportunities for AI to build out more of the defense side of this. Cause obviously like there's the vulnerability conversation that we have, you know, all the time of like what AI opens up vulnerability wise, but great to see kind of the investment and the movement around how do we secure our digital footprint, especially like at the national level, at the government level, because that is becoming more and more pressing in the current age, right? Um, so good to see them looking and investing in how to make ourselves more secure with AI, not just like the vulnerability side that it's exposing, because that's obviously a big piece of the puzzle too. Yep. It's, it's, and again, referring back to the article around making this available publicly, I think it's so exciting because whoever's the winner of the competition, it'll be released to the public to potentially improve basically cybersecurity at that school level, at that hospital level for a lot of these, again, public entities who just don't have the resources, the data science capabilities to do this on their own too. So excited to see what comes out of it. Um, Never been to that conference in Vegas, but it looks like something that's very interesting. Love to go someday. I always watch all the news around it because I always find it to be fascinating because they have to like lock yeah. down Vegas because all these hackers are coming to Vegas. Makes sense. Yeah, makes sense. It's so funny. 
we were talking about that new uh, music venue in Vegas, that giant sphere, like just waiting for that to get hacked eventually someday too. We laugh about it, but I'm sure- Maybe this know. week, we'll yeah. see. Never know, never know. Welcome, Salima Rice. Thank you so much for joining our episode today. How are you doing today, Salima? I'm great, thank you. How are you? Good, good. We were just talking about how right now this is an international podcast. Brendan's in in Spain right now, so it's kind of cool. We actually did an in-person episode with him two weeks ago before he left as well. So yeah, we're doing good. Um, for our listeners at home, Salima is the CEO and founder of CDO Today. Um, Salima, if you wouldn't mind just talking through kind of your role at CDO Today and what you guys are working on over there. Sure. So um, so I've been a, a, a career chief data and analytics officer, um, having been in the industry for a little over 25 years. Um, I'm a kind of fifth generation CDO, which I think makes me kind of unique in the fact that you know, I've been doing this long enough that through the course of my career, I was the bailiff, the lawmaker, the um, the builder, the um, the value driver, the strategic driver, and now I'm more of a strategic advisor. So after being an industry CDO for um, almost 20 years, um, I was also the global managing director of uh, applied intelligence at Accenture, um, an enterprise CDO. So, um, so as I sort of evolved into this sort of next chapter, I thought, you know, what are some things that I really want to do um, in terms of not just being a strategic advisor, but kind of building a think tank um, around CDOs. So when we say um, for CDOs, by CDOs, we mean literally, <laughs> like um, yeah. there are no field CDOs in here. This is truly um, just, you know, peers to peers kind of working through like mentorship, like, you know, um, we've had a seat at the table, like we've had, we've been in your shoes, right? Especially um, uh, a lot of the, the legacy ones. I mean, today we have with AI and this kind of evolution that's happened, you know, we have chief data officers that come from supply chain or that come from manufacturing and really never had the breadth and depth of having, you know, end-to-end -end, uh, data analytics and AI. And so they're, you know, when I look back 20 years ago and say, you know, when I was first starting out, what did I need? Like, what kind of a friend did I need? Or what kind of a mentor? What kind of a book? Like, you know, I mean, sort of like a very small handful of, you know, uh, Bill Inman and Ralph Kimball books on star schemas, you know, um, and maybe Tom Davenport's book on competing in analytics. There just wasn't a blueprint or template out there for us. So CDO today um, allows us to really, you know, be that think tank for each other and also just gives me a platform to be able to um, communicate more and to be able to kind of get the word out as a voice of the industry. That's and fantastic. Yeah. yeah, what an exciting time to do that, too, because CDOs are like, what is about to happen over the next year or two with these yeah. roles and budget and influence? And we're so excited to talk to you about some of those topics, because I'm telling you, like every industry event and conference I'm at, these are the conversations. What is the tech stack evolution going to look like? How much more budget are CDOs going to get? What type of role or influence are they going to have in these companies now that right. they're getting you know, C-level and board-level visibility. Um, so I'm excited to talk to you about that because 
that these are like the hottest pressing topics right now. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't go a day without somebody asking me a question about one of those areas or more so, you know, what are others doing? Right. They want to know, like, how are um, how are companies what are they really doing? Like, are they really as far along or are they really, you know, bringing the organization together? Because as you know, like, you know, we've we've always had a problem becoming data-driven companies, right? I mean, like there's this, you know, uh, what do they call it? Revolving door or um, theory around, you know, CDOs that thrive and CDOs that dive. And it really comes down to creating value. And they've really struggled over the years to kind of show the value of foundational components. But what better way to justify the foundation now is, you know, I can use AI to have a competitive advantage, but without foundation, it's really no good. So now I have a platform where I can take that dual velocity approach to building my platform one amazing product at a time to show value, build the platform, ensure trust, you know, and position myself as not just the change agent, but the consiglior to the CEO. Yeah. And would you say that's a pretty consistent strategy you see CDOs taking? Because I want to ask you, just from your experience, how are CDOs thinking about AI strategy now that their boards and their C-suites are kind of pushing for progress in that way? Yeah. I mean, well, like I said, I think that number one has been kind of around this governance and data quality concerns, right? Like, you know, are we going to build... we can build AI models all day, but how accurate are they? How reliable are they? Um, do we believe that the data in it has been curated and cleansed and and it's secure and unbiased, right? And, and then you kind of walk from data governance into data quality into ethics and compliance, right? Is it, is, are we using not just regulatory AI and thinking about what we should be doing you know, from a regulatory perspective, even though the mandates aren't necessarily here yet, but then we start thinking about if we want to do the right thing, are we applying responsible AI? And then ultimately it kind of comes back to responsible data. So it's one thing to to have the structure in place, but, you know, they're thinking about all these things. Um, talent's another one, right? I mean, like, you know, upskilling the workforce of the future and, you know, how can I really, you know, develop those people who have the business acumen, right? Like these people know our business, like they, you know, they might know data science, but like this training, this expertise that needs to happen, like it's better to, in my opinion, it's much better to upskill and give them opportunity, right? I mean, I don't think that, um, you know, people in the data and analytics space is worried about, you know, their their future jobs as much as other roles where data and analytics can actually help you to learn how to do it faster and better. So I think those are probably, um, you know, the top three that that I hear, right? I mean, I think trust is like, 
trust is everything to me. Like, you know, you know, I've known Reagan for a long time. One thing that um, people know about me is, you know, I'm all about building trust. It's about my relationship is with people, not with companies. And I've made it part of my culture to never tell somebody they want to hear and I, something that they just want to hear. And I think that AI has been around for a really long time, but I think that so much of the organization has seen it as kind of a black box. And yes. so in order for us to really um, create this uh, AI strategy as part of our overall business strategy, like it's not just about the data strategy, it's about the business strategy. And I think that trust um, trust from leadership, trust from the employees, trust from the regulators, trust from your customers is going to differentiate the winners and the losers in this space. I mean, I could be wrong, but, you know, as I'm on several boards, you know, I've been a C-level executive. I work with hundreds of C-level executives. And um, I think taking a responsible and trustworthy approach to how we're going to solution AI is how we will adopt it across the ecosystem. Yeah, it, it's interesting because there was a study that was done last year in terms of trust and confidence in AI, <laughs> and it was at an all-time low last year. Yeah, you know, com companies were very fatigued by this, and then we got a lot of hope that started sprouting with all of the, you know, the hype and excitement, which is fun. But I think we're starting to enter back into this trust territory again because there's so much BS out there too. Yeah. And I think that's making people really hesitant to make decisions. So from your perspective, like one hypothesis I had was that companies are waiting for guidelines to get established so mm -hmm. that they can move nimbly, effectively, responsibly before really like having to define it themselves and, and do it ahead of the curve. Where are mm -hmm. you seeing people fall from that perspective? Like, do you see big companies waiting for guidelines to be published and established so they can adopt them and move uh, you know, in that direction? Or, or do you see people really spending time developing those internally? I think that um, what what I see a lot right now is is very small, um, almost experimentations happening. Um, that's the majority for you know the CDOs that that I that I know is you know we're taking um, small bites at a time, and and I think honestly that is the way to go. I think that. Um, you know, when we talk about all the things that unless you're in financial services, you probably don't have that rock solid foundation, right? I mean, if you're in banking and financial services, you've spent the last 15 years making sure that you have, you know, data lineage and metadata and master data and governance and, you know, stewardship and um, all of the controls in place to ensure that you're making confident fact-based decisions, but you're probably a little behind on the data science. Other industries are the complete opposite. They've been experimenting with it, but knowing that I kind of trust it, but I use it to, I don't use it as a hundred percent of the time, right? It's more of a 80, 20 rule. And I think that now we're looking at how do we get to that happy medium? And so by defining data products in a smaller capacity, you know, not only are we developing something that creates value and trust, 
in, in, a, in a smaller kind of confined environment. But as a result of that data product, we are, we're not looking at boiling the ocean, right? For, um, for me, you know, 15 years ago, I remember somebody saying, oh, we have 20,000, you know, critical data elements. No, you probably don't. But at the time we were like, okay, well, they have 20,000 critical data elements. You know, now we know better, right? Now we know that the critical data isn't the data that we reverse engineer from reports and uh, things that might cause us reputational risk or, you know, financial risk. While those things are important, now we're looking at critical data as those things that we need to use to solve problems. And so by identifying them as we're building um, these AI products and using data products that have been curated and trusted, um, I'm seeing more trust being established throughout the organization, the black box kind of diminishing. And what they're doing is kind of building on one product on top of another, right? So I build this product for sales. I build this product for HR. I build this small product for finance. Now I have three that I could build a product across all three. So now I have the ability in my products, in, in my AI to actually be able to kind of come together with, hey, we don't need to just look at reports anymore and see kind of what happened in the past. Now we can see what happened, why it happened, what's going to happen next. And we can use AI to help us make more confident fact-based decisions to help us be more efficient. And I'm seeing a lot of CDOs looking at this type of investment along with maybe like some of the data market, like data product marketplace, right? Where um, it's kind of like a shopping cart. Like this, it's almost like I see them as, um, you know, an Instagram, you've got the new check mark next year. Like, like this is the real deal. Like that's how you want your data products to be. Like this is the real deal. Like this, you know, this is what you should be using for your AI because it, it has been sort of certified. Totally. And just related to that, uh, especially as companies are thinking about building versus buying, especially with the hype around generative AI solutions too. Are you seeing one way or the other? Are you seeing a hybrid? What are your thoughts on companies building versus buying and the trust related to that? Oh, well, it's interesting. I think that um, initially there was the, I, I think there was more, pros around, you know, maybe building when yeah. you think about taking a, um, an organization that's already existed and kind of thinking about it from the becoming a culture of experimentation, right? I mean, that was an easy way to kind of come out the gate is we're going to be innovative, creative, and have this culture of experimentation and fail fast. And I think that for some things that was great, but something happened in, you know, maybe March called Gen AI, and it sort of created this, you know, crazy, um, you know, uh, inflection point where like all of a sudden everyone wants to be able to do that. So, you know, I, th I think that, you know, when we look at building, 
ourselves, we think about it being very unique to us and very controlled. And but it also comes with a very high cost. Um, it comes with a high cost because experimentation is not, um, it takes you from doing other things, right? And it takes um, people to be skilled in those areas. And there is some level of risk in spending money to fail fast, where one of the, um, I mean, like, I have honestly seen more startups happening in the last 90 days than I have in my entire career. And some of these are just amazing. Like, I honestly love how fast they're able to get to market. And what I've noticed is that they're very niched, right? Like, it's no more like I'm building this for everybody. It's a let's identify um, a specific area like life sciences or banking and financial services. And then within that industry, let's go down to another vertical. Let's look at collections in banking or let's look at, you know, um, let's, you know, look at drug discovery or, you know, like really narrowing it down and creating um, just an amazing opportunity to say, hey, I can bring this to you and you can go to market in weeks. Like literally like three weeks, six yeah. weeks. Like I haven't seen anything, anybody talking about, I can do this in less than six weeks. It's kind of like, I can name that tune all over again, right? It's like, I can name that tune in four weeks. I can name it in three weeks. Um, and so I think because of that, I think there's a lower initial cost because these companies that are figuring this out are um, able to offer it at a lower price point because they know that they can, um, they can rinse and repeat, right? And I think that those companies that um, are doing that and providing such a great value are really going to have a seat at the table. Like, I think that they're the ones that, you know, when I put myself in the seat of a CDAO again, I think like, you know, I want to partner with somebody who's already in it with me, right? Like, this isn't something that we're going to go out and like pick this partner for this one and this one for that one. I think that we're going to identify um, ones that uh, a hot, more hybrid approach, right? Real, really where we're collaborating, where they have a seat at the table, they're, they're learning kind of like, what are your challenges? How can we as a partner kind of help you solve this quicker, faster, you know, provide you value in a much greater time span than you can if you build it in-house. But I think that there's a trade-off. I think we're going to have some in-house, but I think it's going to be as a result of some of the, the stuff that we're building in collaboration. Yeah, just, there's a... Uh, yeah, just how many more applications have come to market. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the tech stack is getting interestingly fragmented. I mean, it has been for the last, you know, five years plus... Um, but now I think these point solutions to your point, like where do we interface with these AI systems versus where do we develop and what's the, is it, is it cut and dry? Is it, you know, a clean break between the two or is it more of a spectrum on, you know, what we're developing internally versus what we're interfacing with externally? And I think that's such an interesting conversation on this build versus buy kind of strategy that CDOs are going to have to put in place. That's right. And I think the tech stack is really 
um, a differentiator, right, in the build versus buy? Like, do you really have the ability um, to be able to ingest any data from anywhere in any format? In a, and do you have the, the, the talent, right? I mean, um, to do it quickly, I think, you know, as we look at sources of data, right? I mean, um, I know, like, in the past, we've used more than 900 sources of external data to enhance and enrich you know, models, like that's daunting to some organizations, but, you know, the ones that can kind of bring that tech stock to life to be able to show how you can be scalable, how you can sort of, you know, use these types of tools to create a, um, a more streamlined process, how it can be interoperable with other, um, with other models that are being created across the function. If you think of like some of the challenges with culture, right? I mean, like, you know, for five years in a row, um, the MIT survey has shown us that culture, not talent, not technology has been number one. Well, when you think about that culture, right? And you think about, you know, our operating model as CDOs, if you're very centralized, it's very difficult to, um, it would be very difficult to embrace that because your tech stack is, you know, very finite to what's been centralized for your organization. But sometimes when you have a, a little bit of a hybrid, I don't like to go totally decentralized, but I think when you have a hybrid um, decentralized model, you enable some technologies in the stack that are a little more innovative and a little more, um, you know, a little more current maybe, right? Because, you know, we all love the phrase, well, we've always done it that way. But this is a time where we need to be open-minded, where we need to be able to collaborate. Like, I cannot stress enough the importance of working together, right? Like the, the most value that my teams have ever gotten has really been to be able to work across the organization to, um, to really have more distributed um, models that they, they can be more complex, but we're kind of bringing everybody along, right? I mean, the the tech stack has um, the opportunity to really expand right now, but expand in a way that allows for um, better user interaction, right? Like we can um, collaborate and not feel like we're all doing the same thing um, with different technologies. We can actually identify like, what are the positive things that we're getting out of this model that we're not getting out of that model and really create kind of an AI center of excellence around technology, skills, um, change management, all those things that ultimately are going to create value for you, value for the CDO office, and then, you know, kind of align to the CEO's goals and objectives for the organization, which is ultimately, you know, what you want, right? Like you should be desiring that. You should be looking at how can I, as the CDO, help future-proof our organization? How can we lean on AI to create the full potential and create kind of the next generation for this organization? Otherwise, we'll all turn into blockbusters, right? <laughs> Yeah, I think what I love about what you just said, too, is like there is this big movement in the data ecosystem and has been for the last like five ish years of decentralization, self-service, getting people more, you know, data acumen uh, and, and getting them 
into the kind of flow of work on working with data. Like not, it's not just these centralized teams that are processing things anymore. We're starting to curate and make it more contextualized. And I think what's so interesting is AI is about to do the same thing. We've had all these data scientists working in these little corners, building these things. And now we're, we're going to see a second generation of tools and a second generation of thought process of decentralizing the ability to interface and build AI and work with it. And I just think that's so fun because the more you can get it to the point where it's providing value, the more mm-hmm. you're going to be able to leverage it. Yeah, that's why I think this evolution of the AI center of excellence is such an important component to organizations. I know for the last 10 years, uh, maybe 20 years, um, there's a handful of us kind of data divas who keep telling people data drives digital transformation. And I think that the data has been so siloed within organizations and the ownership of that data has been siloed or worse, it's been owned by IT who really owns the processes and shouldn't own the data that, you know, they've created this sort of like, it's mine, you know, like mentality, like, you know, I I have this vertical and it's mine. And, And I really think that the center of excellence brings out, brings out the best across the ecosystem and brings us together to say like we can do so much more if we um if we collaborate totally and just i think the comfort around having those verticals really i think comes back to a lot of the governance as well so i'm curious just in talking to cdos around like their tactical conversations related to guidelines and governance like decentralizing obviously comes with governance risk and and how are they thinking about merging those two together, arming more people with data and having them work in data while also staying on top of guidelines of governance? Are they waiting for new regulations or starting to develop their own policies in that way? Curious what you're hearing. Yeah, I mean, data privacy has been, so I think every industry, I'll start with every industry has its own challenges in this space. Um, Obviously, um, security and data privacy is something that, you know, we've been measuring and governing and, you know, in financial services, we've been building policies and procedures um, for many, many years. Um, I think there was this sort of mentality of, you know, are we building it just for the sake of building it though? Or are we really, um, are we really enforcing those policies? And I think as other companies and other industries are starting to look at this, they're kind of looking to those industries who have been um, doing it at maybe a little more at scale, right? In um, like health and life sciences, there's ethical considerations, right? I mean, like, um, are we really being fair? Are we being accountable? Are we avoiding, uh, are we avoiding discrimination? And, you know, kind of how do we mitigate those risks? And I think that CDOs um, are really leaning towards, you um, understanding like what others have done in the past and how you know they're able to be very transparent right like that's something that you know I um I speak a lot with uh, CNBC and MSNBC and one of the things that they are always asking me is like you know how can AI be more transparent like how can we make it so that we're we have better controls in place to um, monitor and audit and you know really like identify areas where there is potential right before it ever happens like the building trust in this area is um 
it's more critical than I think anyone, you know, wants to um, really uh, talk about. I think that, you know, it's not just about, you know, the fact that the open AI, right? Like we know that it's getting all of its information from, um, it's getting all of its information from the internet. But at the end of the day, like when I think about like the evolution, it's like, AI can't have a baby. It can't um, hold somebody's hand when it's dying. And I think that there is a human component that goes, you know, really hand in hand about it, hand in hand with it, that you've got to have trust. You've got to have ethics. You have to have business alignment. You've got to have risk. You've got to have both ethical and societal uh, considerations as you're building and evolving. And I think that, you know, I, I think it's great to experiment, but I think as an industry, as leaders, we have to be teaching the business, which again, it goes back to that AI center of excellence. I really think that as leaders, we need to be um, talking about it more. We have to be um, creating almost a sense of urgency around um, making sure that, you know, this great, fun buzzword and the things that we're able to do with it, that we are governing it and that we're putting the guidelines in place um, to use it for the right, um, for the right purposes. And fantastic points. Thank you so much, Salima. And one last question I like to ask guests before they leave is any favorite resources for learning that you found? Obviously, CDO today is a fantastic resource, but any other ones? I know you shouted out Bill Inman earlier. I had the opportunity to meet him last year. Such a humble guy. Such a great So yeah, he's um cool. he's fantastic. But any other like learning resources, things that you found especially helpful in navigating kind of the merge of CDO and all of these AI initiatives that are coming about that you'd recommend to our listeners? Wow, there's so many good things out there right now. Um, I think that for me, I love hearing about these new organizations that are coming out, right? Like I um, I love hearing the story of new developments that are being created. I mean, you know, shameless plug for Align AI, but I really, you've heard me say today, like collaboration is everything. And, you know, when you think about all the different parts of the organization that could benefit from a truly um, collaborated experience, like talking about bringing the company with you on the journey, like that's so important. Um, there's a, a company called Tamer who I work a lot with, um, who I absolutely love from the CEO down. I love the people and I love what they're doing in terms of creating data products that um, that you trust, right? Like that that, that are curated there. Um, and they, I think that they've really, they've been in the market for a long time, but I really just um, kind of love the fact that they're very focused on helping them be successful. There is a small company called Exponential um, uh, that, uh, is a handful of people that I knew that are have been able to really streamline kind of um, going to market in a very niche environment in like life sciences. And, um, and I think that we're going to see more of that. Um, I, I would, you know, 
I often like just look for opportunities to read into more about how companies are using these types of tools. Um, I'm not, you know, there are great books out there, don't get me wrong, but I think like hearing the stories about what you're doing, how you're doing it, and who's doing it with you, not for you, are the things that really like spike my interest and make me want to like, tell me more. Like, I want to know, like, how did you do it? Who did you bring along? Who is your advocate? Who is your cheerleader? Like, so, um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of funny because a lot of events that I attend now, it's more like a reunion for me than a, you know, because yeah. I don't think anybody is like saying, you know, we're doing it all and we're doing it all right. They're all saying, we're starting, we're starting small, but we're making great headway. And those are the innovators out there who, um, so I sort of like want to come for the ride with. Yeah. Yeah. Be along with that journey. And I am just so grateful to have had the time with you today to talk with you, to learn from you and all that too. Thank you so much. You. If, if folks want to check out what you're doing at CDO today, can they find you on LinkedIn? Do you have any Absolutely. websites you're able to provide? Yeah. Yep. Wonderful. Yep. So we'll, we will provide that uh, website information in the description of the podcast episode. Thank you again, Salima, so much wow. for today and for your time. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Salima. Thank, Thank you. you.